0: open your Bibles or cue up your phones to Ezekiel chapter 4. We're going to look at a portion of Scripture today that I have always, and I'm not the only one, have found very uh, difficult to understand. And one of the most disturbing things when I was preparing this sermon was that even the commentaries disagree with each other about what it means. So I'm going to spend a little time telling you what it means to me. And, uh, of course, using the, the, uh, the knowledge of scholars to inform that. Um, but Ezekiel, many people find it perplexing, especially if you're better familiar with other parts of the Bible. By way of metaphor, I want to tell you a little story. There was, uh, back a little over a century ago, there was an infamous riot that took place in Paris, France. It had all the earmarks of a riot. Flying furniture, flying fists, flying expletives, but these rioters, this mob, was in white tie and tails and in long evening gowns because this riot took place in the upper echelons of Parisian society. It took place at the Ballet Russe, which uh, I think means Russian ballet. And uh, Parisians loved the Russian ballet. They, thought it was, uh, they liked what they called Russian barbarism, they, uh, they, it, it had certain characteristics that they liked. They liked uh, the dancing. The, the, the ballet usually incorporated many um, vaults and jumps and flying leaps. It was very much an air game. And the music was stirring and it was touching. And it featured composers like Tchaikovsky and uh, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov and Prokofiev. Very famous names in classical music. The night of May 29, 1913, the Ballet Russe premiered a new show called The Rite of Spring. It was about the ancient Russian pagans celebrating the vernal equinox, right? Today's the winter sol- of the summer solstice and vernal equinox is the beginning of spring. Well, this performance didn't go well at all. And the usually progressive French, they weren't in any mood for what they saw and what they heard. Uh, Russian savagery was one thing, but this was too much. The choreographer scripted the dance movements in a sequence of crouches and crawls and squats, nothing like the air game they were used to. And then there was the music by Igor Stravinsky. I want to give you a little bit of taste of what they were used to, what they were saturated in, what they were uh, content with. Do we have this one, like clip? So that's what they pretty much were expecting, maybe a little variation on that. What they got was something very different. We can go ahead with the Rite of Spring. music has been written and performed since then, so it might not sound quite so uh, obnoxious to us, but you can imagine if you're bathed in the Nutcracker and, uh, and Sleeping Beauty, that this would be a little bit uh, shocking to the senses. And uh, yeah, the audience went ballistic. Uh, the riot that ensued got so loud that the, the dancers could not hear the orchestra, and so the choreographer had to stand in the pit on a chair, pounding out the time, so they could see with a peripheral vision exactly how it should go. Here's the irony. The Rite of Spring is a staple today in every ballet company, major ballet company in the world, and in every symphony orchestra in their repertory. It's a beloved work today. People gave it a chance, people got used to it. People came to realize something, that the brutal and fearfully superstitious uh, uh, nature of pagan life in ancient Russia could not be depicted by pretty waltzes and pirouettes. So we can fairly say that this was an acquired taste and that's what I would say about the book of Ezekiel. It's, if you're anything like me, you can say that of that book. It's, it's cacophony, like we just heard. It's a, but it's a cacophony of symbols, uh, wheels, wheels within wheels, uh, heads with multiple faces and the like. It's um, too much for the mind to handle sometimes. I like, I like simple narrative with occasional poetry thrown in. I like pretty much uh, linear uh, development. I don't like when God orders one of his prophets to set his hair on fire. I don't like, I don't like it when, when he orders him to be completely bound in his house or never to mourn the death of his wife. Uh, I don't like to think of angels as covered with eyes. That creeps me out. And, and it starts to make sense, though, when you consider the circumstances that Ezekiel finds himself in. When this prophetic book opens, Ezekiel is languishing in Babylon having arrived there in about the 600th year before Christ. It's his 30th year, and this is the year he was supposed to become a priest in the temple, having been trained for that purpose. But instead, he's removed to Babylon with 10,000 other skilled people. It's the second wave of exiles to be sent there by King Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel's overwhelmed immediately. Right out of the gate in this book, he's overwhelmed by a vision of God in his chariot. It's a spectacular and terrifying sight. And through a series of mind-boggling visions and instructions, God gives Ezekiel a message for these expatriates. If you divided Ezekiel in a book, the first third would be judgment and uh, punishment against his covenant people. The second third could be be categorized as as judgment and punishment against Israel's enemies. And the third, that offers hope, just like most of our major prophets do. they, 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 they remind us that God has something better in store for his uh, faithful remnant. First things first, though. Before we get to our reading, chapter 3 of Ezekiel, uh, God is telling the prophet, listen, these people are stubborn. They're not pleasant. You're going to have to set your face. You're going to have to be hardened against them. He says in chapter 3, you have to be as unyielding and hardened as they are. So Ezekiel is going to bring a sharp, stinging message to the heart of heart. This is how Yahweh directed the message be delivered. If you'd stand, if you're able, uh, to receive the very words of God. Read from Ezekiel chapter 4. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it, as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you have finished this, Lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you forty days, a, year, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her, I will tie you up with ropes, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food and eat, eat, to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also, measure out a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord. I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. He then said to me, Son of man, I am about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make these verses clear to us so that Jesus may be glorified and that each one here gathered will know of the inseparable unity of divine justice and divine mercy, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Again, what what God is telling Ezekiel to do in this chapter are what commentaries call sign acts. These aren't exclusive to Ezekiel. Isaiah, you might recall, was uh, told to walk around naked for three years. Jeremiah uh, had to smash jars to make a point. They're God-directed, but they're culturally shocking and they're, they're, in every way, uh, just socially, they're anti-social in many cases. Most of you will notice from your Bibles that this chapter is described as the siege of Jerusalem symbolized. So Ezekiel's bizarre behavior is to inform his fellow exiles that Yahweh would issue no more warnings, no more calls to repentance. They could take no hopes in their pipe dreams of eventual victory by Judah in a short stay in Babylon. See, the launch sequence was activated. And Judah, thought to be invulnerable, would fall, and fall miserably. So he built a model of clay used for making bricks. Now you can imagine his fellow exiles would appreciate looking at their beloved home, at least in miniature, uh, comforting themselves with memories. But this model has some uncomfortable additions to it. Ramparts, armed camps, mounds, and catapults surrounding the city, suddenly Jerusalem does not look so comfortable and much less imposing it looks more vulnerable and you, they, they will realize that its security is imperiled jerusalem's security is imperiled worse there's that frying pan that iron wall it's not protecting the city it's isolating her from god's deliverance the next sign is a strange work of of binding, divine binding, where Ezekiel, he switches roles from judged to be judged. As the days of his confinement correspond to the years of the sins of Israel, we can sort of count back and, and, and trace uh, uh, those points of no return. Uh, it varies, as I say, but you can you can trace it back to Solomon, who invited his pagan wives to bring their gods to Israel. Uh, and in terms of Judah, you could trace it back to Manasseh, who was Judah's most wicked king. Whatever, whenever the origins of the Lord's displeasure, this sign act demonstrates that not only is Jerusalem's security eroding, but so too is her freedom. They could neither come or go, and here's the thing, neither could the supplies. Verses 9 through 11 tells us, tell us that the sign act, this sign act represents a want. It represents want for sustenance. Rich, nutritious food runs out, and the besieged city dwellers start scrounging and rationing. The food declines in both quality and quantity. Its sole virtue is that it's there at all. Cheap ingredients thrown together to somehow approximate adequate sustenance, and it's symbolically doled out just enough to survive another day. How much? Eight ounces of food and a half liter of water. Of course, it's inadequate and the besieged population will get weaker and weaker and weaker. Verse 12 reminds us that this is not your whole foods Ezekiel bread. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. Seven days ago, I sat where you sit, and I was listening to Brother Hogerhide preach on eunuchs. And my heart sank because this sermon was already prepared and I'm about to preach to you on poop. (laughs) Well, I'd rather not burden you with another delicate biological subject in the very next week. I'm going to, if you'll excuse the expression, pile it on. I'm proud and ashamed to tell you that this happens to be my area of expertise. Actually, this is true. Over the last few years, I was uh, contracted to write a series of articles for a company that produces anaerobic digesters. Anaerobic digestion is a process you see here on your slide. Um, you You take organic material, for instance, compost, food scraps, dead foliage, grass clippings, wastewater, you name it, and you deprive it of oxygen. In 10 days, more or less, and through four stages, the bacteria is going to chemically break down the material and it releases two gaseous compounds, methane and carbon dioxide. The methane is called biogas. And for centuries now, biogas has actually been used for cooking and home heating, but it's technology evolved. Scale was incorporated, incorporated and today biogas plants provide fuel for electrical utilities. And and actually, in the case of Grand Junction, Colorado, the the public transit fleet runs exclusively on biogas. It's one of the greenest technologies we have because the methane is contained and the CO2 that gets emitted would have been emitted by this decaying organic matter anyway. So it's carbon neutral. And what happens is, well, you know, I told you of, of the number of things that you can use to create biogas, Can you take a guess at what the most efficient and effective one is? Poop. Manure, mainly livestock manure. Cattle, dairy, and poultry, and hog farmers who can afford these anaerobic digesters, they're now powering their farms on manure, and they're selling the surplus electricity back to the grid. They're doing very well. So what's the most common question that follows? Well, if they can do it. Can't we just power our homes and communities on our own waste? Well, as it turns out, you humans, the World Health Organization says that your waste is disgusting. In fact, even among those with the simplest diets, human excrement is among the highest in toxins, parasites, and pathogens. A farmer could spread raw cow manure on his or her field and improve soil health significantly. Human waste would degrade it significantly. Now, Ezekiel was no expert in anaerobic digestion, but he did know Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 14, which reads Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with, and when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Ezekiel knew that preparing the loaf as God directed would defile him. God knew this too, and he relented because his point had already been made. The citizens of Jerusalem would no longer have a choice about keeping the dietary and hygiene rules. They would be subjected to illnesses and unsanitary conditions that were once, they were once able to avoid. Cooking food over human dung will kill you before starvation does. For sure, any septic tank technician will tell you about the dangers, the hazard of human excrement as he's getting into his biohazard jumpsuit. Of all the sign acts, this one, although modified at Ezekiel's pleading, this one is the most sobering. It's a sign of desolation. It's a harbinger of death. And we can see that using our 2020 hindsight with science. But science usually follows scripture. Uncleanness was not just an offense to God. It was self-destructive. And the manner of food prep, according to this sign Act, assures that anti-nutrients will more than cancel out any of the few nutrients these second-rate ingredients offered. My point, we're at the off-ramp here, okay, so of the poop discussion. My point in emphasizing it is that God's seemingly extreme discipline reflects his own revulsion, his own revulsion over what is actually willful self-harm by those he loves. They'll learn that their idolatry produces the opposite of what they seek. And maybe the worst consequence of this siege is estrangement, estrangement one from another. Verses 16 and 17 tell us that the people will take no pleasure in fellowship. They'll hate the sight of one another. It will get so bad they don't even recognize one another. Jeremiah actually gives us an on-the-scene report during this siege in Lamentations, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says, The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, Their appearance like lapis lazuli. But now, did I pronounce that right? I don't know. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled to the bones. It's become as dry as a stick. I I may not have pronounced it right, but lapis lazuli is a a semi-precious stone that is very bright blue. It's brilliant, actually, to look upon when it's been shined up. So these people appeared radiant and brilliant in their former times. Now... Their emaciated bodies are covered in filth. We can imagine sunken eyes and terrified expressions on gaunt faces. No longer a community, Jerusalem's now a collection of competitors for scarce resources. The only thing they would share in common now is a survival instinct or a wish to simply die. So where is Judah's identity to be found? All that made her powerful, all that made her special, all that made her formidable is gone. Ezekiel's brother and sister exiles are confronted with these Synax, through these Synax, with the dreadful prospect that there is no Jerusalem to which to return. What then makes them a people when their God-given place of the earth, when their uh, piece of the earth is flattened? When a foreign king essentially cancels them? When the very things they sought from idols slip away? Well this is the purpose of God's discipline. It's to reveal to the world and remind his own people of his glory and of the futility of their idols. Over 60 times in Ezekiel God promised pronounces this result over his covenant people and over his enemies. He says, "Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord." That is the goal. "Then you will know that I am the Lord." Book ending. These pronouncements in Ezekiel are visions of the corrupt temple, rife with idols, and a new restored temple. Prior to Jerusalem's demise, God takes the prophet to the temple in a vision in real time. Chapter 8 shows what the temple devolved into. Now, I I, I don't have the time to read chapter 8 for you. I'm going to just give you four examples of what's happening Uh, and I've referenced their their, their verses here one is an idol that provokes to jealousy, provokes God to jealousy. We're not quite sure what that is but scholars speculate it may have been some monument to Baal or an Asherah pole Uh, in any event whatever it is, its placement appears to coincide with where the priests would enter on their way to the altar so there's a brazen and defiant quality to placing an idol there Uh, then there's idolatry inside the walls. I, I wrote a voice of grace a few weeks ago on this, the the elders of Israel, in secret, in these secret chambers and crevices, they're worshiping what appear to be pantheistic Egyptian gods, fully adopting the idolatry of the people, but keeping it well hidden. There are women weeping. Now, they may have been weeping about infertility. They may have been weeping because they had a bad crop. But they're weeping for uh, the Mesopotamian fertility god, Tammuz. They're emotionally invested in this God. And then the men are outside worshiping the sun. They're adoring the sun with their backs to the temple. They're worshiping the gift of light over the giver. So we can see that the temple was thoroughly polluted from the outer courts to the most inward compartments. Not surprisingly, chapter 11 tells us that God took his glory and departed the temple and departed Jerusalem. When God's holiness is disrespected, his his glory will not remain. We can see from the corrupted temple that Babylon had invaded and conquered even before the siege succeeded. The the, uh, ancient military strategist, Sun Tzu, said that uh, wars were won and lost in the shrines before a single blow was ever landed. Here, Judah lost the war in God's own house because they lost their mighty fortress, their bulwark, their shield. God was on the other side of that iron skillet now, pressing the case against them. They'd taste his wrath through isolation and depletion and alienation. Their noses would be rubbed in the excrement. Why? The last words of chapter 4 say it all. Because of their sin. Judah sought sought security. Judah was hoping for a successful alliance with Egypt, so her elders worshipped Egypt's gods in secret. Judah wanted fulfillment and abundance, so her women set their hearts on a fertility god. Judah desired to identify with a sky god and be free of their invisible god's demands. God answered these wishes with judgment. Abundance would give way to poverty, starvation, and death. Security would yield to vulnerability, conquest, and death. Freedom would morph into the binding chains of slavery, exile, and death. This discipline would not cease until every idol and false god was shown up to be ineffectual and their worship completely in vain. What Ezekiel is acting out is a truth that every believer must embrace. The Lord's discipline is always righteous and justified. Most importantly, it always aims toward restoration. In chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a new and remade temple from which a river flows, beginning as a trickle and growing in its volume and its velocity. 47, six through 10 read, then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So, where the river flows, everything will live. So, what's notable about the second temple is the flow of living water from the inside out. The first temple, polluted and degraded, was centripetal, it drew all of the impotent idols, false deities, and corrupt ideas in. The new temple works in the opposite direction. It's centrifugal. It releases God's holiness, glory, and life into the world. It resuscitates dead places. And it generates abundant life. This begs the question, how do we get from temple one to temple two? To bring about the new, clean, and holy temple requires yet another siege. As horrific as the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem was, this other siege would be worse because it would take, time, it would take place outside time and space. Yes, it would be visible to mortals, but, but its pain and suffering they couldn't measure. The earthly siege would be an act of divine justice. The cosmic siege of divine mercy. The Babylonian siege was the wrath of one spurned by an adulterous spouse. The cosmic siege Was the means by which an abandoned father welcomes back his prodigal son. We look at the arrest and the trial and the torment and the crucifixion of Jesus as occurring in less than 24 hours. We see his friends run away and even deny him. He's isolated. We see him bound and subject to the cruel whims of wicked men. He loses his freedom. We witness in scripture his multiple abusive interrogations. His tormentors were the unwitting dispensers of God's wrath upon God's lamb. Hanging on the cross, the Lord was starved, not of food, but of oxygen. Isaiah tells us, like the citizens of Jerusalem just before it fell, Jesus was unrecognizable. He says, just as there were many who were appalled, same word, appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. But that was just on the surface. His father, from whom his words came and from whom his miracles were generated, he wouldn't recognize him either. We sing, the father turned his face away, and that's true, but there's another way to look at it. Remember the frying pan. The Father set his face against the Son and allowed the siege against Jesus to proceed unabated until it was finished. Until his passionate anger at sin was emptied. Witnesses to Jesus' suffering record about six hours on the cross, but the effects of his suffering are eternal. I like how Andrew Menkes, he's a writer and Bible teacher, he explained this in a Gospel Coalition blog. He said, Imagine a teacher who punishes a student by making him write, I will not call people names 100 times. Regardless of whether it takes 30 minutes or 3 hours, the punishment is not complete until he writes the sentence for the 100th time. Something similar is going on with the atonement. If we make a distinction between the duration of punishment and the complete pouring out of God's wrath on sin, we can understand how Christ, an infinite being, took our punishment without spending eternity under God's wrath. So Jesus endured the siege to end all sieges. Because the Son of God surrendered his security, his freedom, his life, and in an awful moment, his very identity, so that eternal wrath would pass over those who can sincerely name his name. He makes each one of us the new restored temple, bringing revival and renewal to the dead seas around us. Those who completed Sifting Week are a perfect example, right? As we live our lives on this earth, he will, yes, correct our course through discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses five through six tell us, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. The book of Ezekiel tells us that we must be holy for God's glory to be present but only Jesus can make us holy Christian discipline for the believer is God's way to focus our lives on what he loves and separate us from what he despises what did uh, John and the band sing in that offertory song our chains are on the floor our chains are on the floor discipline helps us to look up to look up for his strength, his wisdom, and his sustaining love. It might arrive through your circumstances, financial, family, any number of circumstances that may prove difficult for you. Or it could come through a tormented conscience, the Holy Spirit, pressing, prodding. Discipline can even come through the church to safeguard its peace and purity. There is no pleasure in that, believe me, least of all for those charged with enforcing it. But the desired end is always the same. It's our reclamation. That's the desired end. If you're not a Christian, you may be put off by all this talk of discipline and holiness. Thinking of the well-worn description, holier than thou. Well, no doubt, there's more than a handful of people that like to trumpet their own virtue. But that's not the gospel. In fact, nobody can be holier than another. Either Christ's blood covers you, or it doesn't. Holiness is not legalism. It's a state of the heart. The the, the corrupt temple wasn't represented by a few ceremonial infractions. It was a wholesale, widespread worship of foreign gods by those chosen to bring the one true God to the world. Still if you are feeling overwhelmed and oppressed or under siege by your circumstances, consider the claims of Jesus, whose own siege we cannot fathom. He says in John, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God does not go to extremes. He goes only as far as your soul requires. The pain of your life may in fact be him calling you his kingdom consider the reality that god's love and his justice are united and that jesus died on the cross to lift your life out of the excrement and save you for eternal security for spiritual liberty for abundant life and for a royal identity all lost by judah in 586 bc but actually lost by adam in the beginning but won back by our savior in his 33rd year on earth let's pray Jesus, you suffer judgment in a manner we cannot comprehend. By faith, we receive your gracious sacrifice on our behalf and seek to live to honor that eternal atonement. As children of our Father in heaven, help us to live in faith and obedience for the sake of your glory and for our own spiritual welfare. Help us to receive pain in our lives, always remembering that you have a purpose. It may be discipline. It may be to strengthen us for greater challenges. It may be for any manner of what comes ahead between now and the kingdom. But Lord, we we have confidence that whatever we suffer through, it is for our good and for your glory. And for those reasons, we submit our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.